guys. Thanks for being here. We are on Article 7, Part 2, The Church. And uh, my name is Rachel Nelson. It's great to be with you guys tonight. I appreciate my hubby filling in for me last week while I was in cold, cold Chicago. But I chose the church and I chose the Bible last semester. I actually picked mine first and because the men are slow in responding. Because I just, I love the church. The church is mysterious, right? And it's beautiful. And so I'm just excited to talk about the church tonight. So um, just to briefly look at our article again, Article 7, let's just look at the second part of our Article 7. So tonight we're going to kind of hit the second part of Article 7. So we can look at the next slide, Chuck. Um, the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. So what, just curious, what, is, um, what are some of the metaphors that scripture uses to kind of help us understand the church. You maybe talked about a few last week or you read some in your verses. Just shout them out. Body of Christ. Did you say something different, Sarah? Bride of Christ. What else? The building. There, there's a couple different references to the building, aren't there? Can anybody elaborate on the building? Christ is the cornerstone, the temple. Yeah, the, the living stones, yeah. The household. The, a household, a family. Any other ones? Of all of those, does anybody have like a favorite that really just resonates with you? Like, like gosh, I just really love the meaning of this metaphor of the church. Oh, one more that I really love that you didn't say is the vine. I am the vine and you are the branches. Any favorites and Why? Yes. Yes. So Tammy said the body of Christ because each part has its, has its part to, to contribute and they're all of equal value. And when they all work together, it's a beautiful thing building up the body. Anybody else? One more maybe that's especially special to you and why? Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yes, the church is the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. What is it about that, Ellen, that you just love about that? Yeah, makes us feel connected. Right. His bride. Yes, yes, for sure. All right, next slide. So last week, Lance talked about... Um, the nature of the church, the marks of the true church, and the purity and unity within the church. And then tonight, we're going to really quickly hit three characteristics of a true church. And then we'll jump into that second part of the article, the ordinances of the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Well, one, um, 
I love the metaphors, and I read somewhere, and it could have been in Evangelical Convictions, or it could have been in Grudem. I love that they, they help give us a richer, fuller picture of the church. And it was either Evangelical Convictions or Grudem that said, you know, we can't just look at one. We can't just look at the Bride of Christ, or we can't just look at the temple or the body, that all of them give us a fuller, richer picture of the church, and we need them all. So I love the one that's the bride of Christ too, and one of our twin daughters is engaged, and she's going to be married October 30th, Marissa, and she's got her dress picked out, and she's got the venue, she's got the flowers, she has everything. She has all the, all the big stuff is done, and she is anticipating on October 30th, dressing in her bridal gown and walking down the aisle to her groom and, um, and getting married. And, you know, I thought about that, and I wanted to show you guys a picture. You can, you can go to the next slide, Chuck. So this was taken 35 years ago, and my dad is walking me down the aisle, and you know how the photographer stands and gets in the way to pose? And I don't know how he or she, I don't remember if it's a guy or a girl, caught this split second when my dad and I were at the top of the aisle and he's ready to walk me down. And as we're starting to walk down, he turns to me and says, and I think I've told you this, he turns to me and said, are you sure you want to go through with this? <laughs> and I want you to look at the look on my face. Like I didn't... I did not even turn and say, yes, Dad, I am sure. I, I was so focused on what? My groom. My groom at the, waiting for me right here. And I just love that picture of, like you said, Ellen, we are the bride of Christ. And we are focused on our bridegroom, on Jesus. And, and have that hope. Of, of that prize and that hope. And so um, you can go to the next slide now. And so this is, this is kind of the, the prize. Next one. There it is. That's the prize, right? Like I got to my bridegroom, I got him, and now we're walking arm in arm on this journey happily ever after. And I love that picture of that we are the bride of Christ, and Christ is our bridegroom. And we have that hope of meeting him face to face and being forever in his presence, walking side by side. Um, so I think, I think meditating on the metaphors is a really, really rich way to expand our vision of the church. All right, let's get into the threefold purpose of the church. The purpose of the church in relation to... God, the first purpose of the church is for worship. We are to worship him. Worship is not preparation for something else. Um, worship is what we do. In Colossians, Paul directs the church to sing psalms and hymns. In Ephesians, God has destined us and appointed us in Christ to live for the praise of his glory. So in relation to God, the purpose of the church is worship. So secondly, in relation to believers, the purpose of the church is to nurture. One of our, our purposes of a church is to nurture believers, to build them up to maturity, to the fullness of Christ, maturity in the faith. 
In Colossians 1, Paul expresses his own goal is not only bringing men and women to saving faith, but also to present every man and woman mature in Christ. In Ephesians 4, Paul told the church at Ephesus that God gave gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ so that we can all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of God. So the whole of scripture teaches that we don't only bring people to saving faith, but we build up believers in maturity in Christ. Um, and then thirdly, in relationship to others, the purpose of the church is evangelism and mercy. We need to share the gospel. We're commanded to share the gospel, Matthew 28 and many other places, and we're commanded to show mercy. First of all, we see love and mercy and justice lived out in Jesus' life and how he lived and walked. And then we also see... Um, other places, Micah 6.8, that's actually our memory verse for elementary kids this month, act justly and love mercy, Isaiah 1.17, seek justice and defend the oppressed. Um, so in relation to others, the purpose of the church is to evangelize and show mercy. All right, so you can go to the next slide. So in ministry to God, the purpose is worship, in ministry to believers... The purpose is nurture and ministry to the world. It's evangelism. So which one of these three is the most important? They are all equally valuable. Right, right. They're all equally valued to be a true church. How do we keep them all? of equal importance and value. And that might be something to discuss in your small groups. How do we as a church keep all three of these things, worship, nurture, and evangelism, and, and mercy, equal priorities in the church so that one doesn't become more elevated? You know, we all, each believer brings their passions and gifts with them to church, which is great. But then it can cause some contention when somebody with the gift of evangelism says, we are not sharing the gospel enough. There are people going to hell, and we're not doing a thing about it. We should be knocking on doors and sharing the gospel. We should be preaching the gospel, having an altar call every week. Or somebody with the gift of worship and singing says, we are, we are not worshiping the Lord enough. We need more worship songs. We need more scripture, some liturgy, some quiet contemplation. We're just not worshiping. And somebody with the gift of mercy said, you know, there are widows in our church. There are people in our city that are hungry and don't have a home to sleep in tonight, and we are not doing anything. Why are we not doing anything? So these can kind of be a contention with each other, and, and we, as we seek the purity and unity of the church, we want to seek that all of these would be of equal value. And that would be something kind of fun to discuss in your groups is how do we, how do, we do that? Okay, one note on church government. Okay, at this, at this point kind of in our licensing process is where we, um, we have to give just a short description on church government in the EFCA. So I'm just gonna read you a short paragraph out of my licensing paper as kind of going along with this article on the church about church government. So the EFCA consists of autonomous yet interdependent congregations of like faith with a congregational form of government. 
Each body is given the freedom to govern its own affairs, led by pastors and elders with Christ as the head, with the congregation having a voice through input and voting. All the congregations are interdependent with one another, as together we can accomplish more for the kingdom through support, training, church planting, and outreach. Congregationalism is significant to the EFCA because many denominations do not give lay people a voice and opportunity to lead and have a part in making decisions for the body. So that's just a little footnote in our church article here on church government. Yeah. Oh, that's, did y'all hear that? Right, right. We're so glad you did too, Ellen. So Ellen said she thought when she saw the title Evangelical Free Church that we were free of evangelicalism. And that's a good study too and something to talk about in your groups is what does evangelical free church mean and what is the root in the history? We have a rich, rich history and rich meaning of that. Thank you for sharing that, Ellen. Free. Well, the free does, it does refer to... Right. 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 Yeah. Right. So we're not born into the state church. We freely choose to accept Christ and each church is autonomous. Each little C church is autonomous. Yeah, that's good. Good, you guys. Okay, let's get into the ordinances of the church. I want to share a few notes first on the ordinances of the church. So we can go to the next slide or even the next. Let me see. Yep, one more. Oh, one more. All right, ordinance of the church. Okay, some notes, some intro notes on just on ordinances in general. So you hear the word sacraments and you hear the word ordinances. So we actually reject the term sacraments and we accept the word ordinances because the word sacraments was used by the Roman Catholic view. And we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but we reject it because they believe that grace is conveyed to the participants regardless of their faith when they partake of the ordinance, when the priest administers the sacrament. So we reject the term sacrament. Ordinance, and we use the word ordinance because these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, were ordained or mandated by Christ. So we observe two ordinances. Baptism occurs once in the life of the believer, and the Lord's Supper, which is an ongoing, um, repeatedly throughout the life of the believer. They visibly and tangibly express the gospel. They're all about the gospel, which is a beautiful thing. And I love this phrase out of the statement of faith. They confirm and nourish the believer in a spiritual way. And the context is always within when the word of God is proclaimed. So those are just a few notes about ordinances in general. Okay, let's go on to baptism. Let's talk about baptism first. Let's look, think about first the context of baptism in scripture. We see John the Baptist baptizing first, preparing the way for the Messiah. Um, and then, of course, Jesus is baptized. And the day of Pentecost, there's thousands baptized. And the early church, the apostles, 
Acts 8, 9, and 10, um, they just continued the practice of baptism. So Matthew 3, I'm going to read Matthew 3, Jesus' baptism, just as a little uh, intro here. So Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So that's a little background of baptism. All right, let's jump into a few things about baptism. A, the mode and the meaning of baptism. So we practice the mode of immersion. Immersion baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, um, which means to plunge, dip, or immerse. And we see that repeatedly through scripture. When in Mark, people were being baptized in the Jordan River. In Mark 1.10, Jesus came up out of the water. In John 3, they were baptizing at Enon because there was a lot of water there. And in Acts 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, um, they saw a lot of water and went down. So you get the impression that it's immersion. You know, when they're going down into the water, coming up out of the water. We see lots of water, so let's go do it right now. Um, we get the idea that it's full, full immersion. So the mode is immersion. The meaning of baptism, it is a symbolism, a symbolism of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, a symbol of going down under the water, being buried with Christ, coming up out of the water, being raised to new life. And secondly, it's also a symbolism of our purification, our washing of sins and just being cleansed from his sins. But notice the little note there. Well, let me look at a couple of scriptures of that. The purification and washing of sins. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the spirit. And Acts 22, 16 says, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Hebrews 10 says, Having our bodies washed with pure water. But just a little note there. The symbolism of union with Christ takes precedence over the symbolism, I'm not touching it, over the symbolism of, um, of being purified from sins. So that's the meaning and the mode of baptism. All right, B, the subjects of baptism. Subjects of baptism. First, let's talk about two views that we do not hold, the Roman Catholic view we referred to this earlier. Um, the view is that the sacraments work apart from the faith of the people participating. That grace is bestowed on the people participating regardless of their faith. Baptism is administered to infants, and it is necessary for salvation, and it does cause regeneration. So we reject that view. A second view, B, under subjects of baptism, the paedo-baptist view. Baptism is still administered to infants, but it's the infants of believing parents. So it's a little bit different. 
Should I switch out, Chuck? If it keeps going in another minute, I'll switch out. Um, or I'll use a handheld. So a paedo-baptist, baptism is administered the infants of, so the, so the parents are believers, but the child is still an infant. And they kind of call this the covenant argument um, because they, they, they explain it as that we are welcoming these infants into the covenant community of believers. So the sprinkling of the infants, the baptism, is just welcoming these children into the covenant community. They parallel it with circumcision in the Old Testament and look at it in kind of the same light they also parallel it in the New Testament when whole households were saved and they were all being baptized. You know, the insinuation is the whole household, the little kids, the babies, everybody. So that's the second view, the Pado-Baptist view, all right? And then the third, believer's baptism, is what we hold. And we believe that Scripture teaches that only those who are trusting in Christ for salvation should be baptized. Um, we see it again and again in Scripture, but here's three places in Acts. Acts 2, Peter preaches a sermon at Pentecost. People believe. They're baptized. Acts 8, Philip preaches the good news. People repent and their trust in Christ. They're baptized. Acts 10, after Peter preached to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, they repented, they're saved, and then they're baptized. So we hold to believer's baptism, that somebody should be a believer, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, first. Okay, C, the effect of baptism. The effect of baptism, it confirms and nourishes the believer. And obedience always brings the blessing and favor of God. Now, who has been, who has been here when we've done baptism in the courtyard or on the stage in the tub? Has anybody been here, seen that? Okay, so is there an effect on the witnesses of the baptism service. So, you know, it just talked about the person being baptized, the effect for them. But what about all of us as we're the witnesses? What are the effects on, on the witnesses, on us? Yeah, it's a great day. I love it. What else? Right. 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 So that children are making the choice to follow Jesus and they're they're making the choice that they want to follow. They want a public profession of the inward faith and making the choice to follow him in baptism. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's the Holy that's the Holy Spirit leading the children. Yeah. Yes. And that's what we encourage here, especially. We really want to see that the the children and the teenagers are the ones, not the parents, being like, I want to be baptized. I want to do it. And this is why. This is important to me. Yeah. Any other any other thoughts about the effects of baptism on the witnesses? The first word that comes to my mind is joy. It is a joy-filled celebration. I think it's one of the most joyful things we do here is a baptism service. 
and um, it's just, yeah. So it brings joy and celebration, and it, it strengthens the believers. It strengthens our faith, doesn't it? It encourages our faith to witness it. So the effects of baptism. Okay, D, the necessity of baptism. So if, if it doesn't save us, if it's not necessary salvation, why do we do it? So it's commanded by Christ and the apostles. It's in Matthew 28 and Acts 2. It's also, um, it's also demonstrated by Christ. I mean, he, he got baptized. He did it himself. Okay, E, the age of baptism. So if we're going to believe in believer's baptism, is there, you know, how young is too young for the age of baptism? Okay, seven. You're spot on with how I, I think, Ellen. So if we're going to say we hold the believer's baptism, then we're looking that the child has Trusted Christ as your Savior. We're looking, the parents, you know, I want to see from the parents that they really see evidence of that faith. We want to see evidence of some fruit in their life. Um, we want to see that the person, no matter how old they are, can, can share their testimony, share their faith, maybe explain the gospel, and that they can say, like, you know, I like to ask children, why do you want to be baptized? What does baptism mean? And can they, you know, I've heard all sorts of reasons when I ask kids that question. Um, you know, it could just be, you know, it just looked really fun. I want to hop in the tub, you know. Um, so the age of baptism, they need to be a believer and be able to show understanding of their faith. Um, let's see, note on silence in the statement of faith. Okay, so if you notice our article so our article of faith, Article 7, the free church chooses silence on the timing and the mode of baptism on purpose. It doesn't address it. This is the autonomy part in our denomination. So there is no clear direction on, they, they choose silence on the timing, whether it's infant, child, adult. They choose silence on the mode, whether it's full immersion or sprinkling or pouring. They continue to, we debate these issues, but we're not going to divide over them. If they're non-essential to the faith, if they're non-essential to the gospel, we don't want to divide over them. We want to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Um, what is non-negotiable is that baptism doesn't cause salvation. That's a non-negotiable. Non that, that's in the statement of faith. But the timing and the mode we're, they're choosing silence on a purpose. All right, let's go on to the Lord's Supper. Um, this is an ordinance that is repeated throughout the believer's life. Matthew 26, I think it's kind of cool to think about um, the, the timing of the Lord's Supper being at the Passover meal, after the Passover after Jesus had enjoyed a Passover meal with his disciples. So Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
I love that last <laughs> phrase. I will not drink of it, the vine again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And 1 Corinthians 11 is another one. All right, let's go on. A, eating in God's presence. I think it's kind of cool to think about eating in God's presence throughout the Bible. It's a special blessing throughout the Bible, if you think about it. If you think back to Adam and Eve, every meal they had before the fall was a meal in the presence of God. They were feasting in the presence of God. In Exodus, after the Ten Commandments, God called up Moses and Aaron and and two, two other priests and 70 elders. They went up on the mountain. They beheld God and ate and drank. In Deuteronomy 14, Moses instructs the Israelites to, um, to feast on one-tenth, one time a year in the presence of God. And he says, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Now, these meals are just a partial restoration of the fellowship broken in the garden. And certainly a little cracker and a little sip of juice is not, um, you know, not a feast, but it is the symbol of the feast. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus' payment for our sin is accomplished. And we now can eat in the Lord's presence with great rejoicing. We can also look ahead to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The final big feast in heaven. All right, B, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Chuck's bringing me a handheld. Okay, I'm going to keep this on though because I've got it on. Okay, I'll talk loud till then. B, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Okay, so it is a symbolism of Christ's death, his body sacrificed and his blood shed. So it's a symbolism, the bread, his body, and the, the juice, his, or the wine, his blood. Um, our participation in a benefit, we, we share in the benefits of Christ's death. We participate in him. It's a spiritual nourishment. We commune with Christ in the Lord's Supper. Um, we have a fellowship. The Lord's Supper is meant to be shared together, a fellowship of believers in community with one another, not alone. And as I partake, I affirm my faith in Christ. Um, so the key is the symbolism of Christ's body and blood shed on the cross for us. So see, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Again, let's look at two really quick views that we do not hold. The Roman Catholic view, transubstantiation. This view holds that the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ. That as the priest holds up the bread and says, this is my body, that it becomes the body and the blood of Christ. And that grace is imparted to all those, to all you, regardless of your faith, through this ordinance. But the problem with that is, Scripture teaches that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was complete once and for all. We don't need to repeat it again and again. And it really is repeating the sacrifice. So a second view, the Lutheran view, in, with, and under, holds that the, it does not become, but that Christ um, is present with the elements, in, with, and under the elements. And somebody compares it to like water in a sponge. The water doesn't become the sponge, but it's in the sponge. 
So they're not transformed into Christ's body and blood, but they're present with the elements. And then thirdly, the rest of Protestantism, and we hold that it's a symbolic and spiritual presence of Christ. So when Jesus, at the, when he was doing the Lord's Supper in the upper room, he's right there physically with them. He's holding up the bread saying, this is my body. He clearly means it's a symbol because this is his body, not this is his body. And we see Jesus a lot of other times saying, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the vine. I am this. I am that. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a symbolism. Um, so we believe that it is, a, it is a symbol in the body of the blood in Christ and gives a visible sign of the fact that Christ himself is present. And because Christ left us his spirit, we have his presence with us. All right, last two quickly. Participation in the Lord's Supper. Who and how? Those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation can partake in the Lord's Supper. And how? With self-examination. We want to look back and remember what Christ has done on the cross. We want to remember, think about the gospel. We want to look around and maybe think about, are there some sin I need to confess? We need to think about right now, the presence of Christ right now in my life and in this room. And we want to look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb and of the restoration and the hope that he has promised. And the promise that as he rose to new life, we will as well rise to new life. So the how was self-examination. All right, on page 183 in Evangelical Convictions, this would be fun to talk about in your small group too. Let me just read this. It was taken out of a couple different paragraphs on page 183 in your book. The church is to be a provisional expression of the new humanity united in Christ, which God has graciously purposed to create for his own glory. For God's gospel is embodied in this new community called the church. If this is so, then shouldn't every Christian be a committed member of a church? If you believe, then you must belong. For without a commitment to the local church, we have not rightly understood the gospel. There's a couple really strong statements in there. And it might be fun to hash that around in your small groups. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you, you, can't, if you are a true Christian, you should belong to the body of Christ, to a little C church? Do you believe that if somebody is not a part of the, a little C church, does that mean that they don't understand the gospel? It's, it's a growing epidemic, I feel like, made worse by COVID, that we see more and more people who profess to be true believers. They're like, I am following Jesus. I'm a Christian, but... I'm not a part of a local church, and I don't want to be, and I don't need to be. I do not need to be a part of a local church to follow Jesus. There are more and more people that believe that. So that might be something fun to kind of kick around a little bit. If we, if we really have a full, rich meaning of the church being the body of Christ, Grudem talks about this in his Bible Doctrine book. If we're really going to have a robust view that the church is the body of Christ, then to reject the church, the body of Christ, is to reject Christ. Just something to think about. Okay, we are going to close our time. Lance is going to come, and we are going to, after talking about the Lord's Supper, we are going to close our time in having the Lord's Supper and then going to our...
group. Am I staying off camera? As um, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus with his disciples through those years. He's the master teacher. He spoke through parables and object lessons all the time to try to teach them. And when you think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, again, it's, it's these object lessons that help them to truly understand. Um, what I want you to do is um, I want you to come up and gather. One cup has the bread. One cup has the juice. And if you need gluten-free, there's some over here. But come in as close as you feel comfortable, but spread out a little bit. But take the elements and just... Be up here a little bit closer because I really want you to see closer up. Because I think a lot of times when we sit so far back, we kind of lose the richness of what the Last Supper, the first time the disciples actually saw this. So come on on up and, and stand around as you feel comfortable. All right, 1 Corinthians, as you're coming and, and sitting, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Part of it together. But before we do it, the reason I had you come up close, when the disciples were with the Lord, they were having a table, they were lounging around the dinner table, let's say. But being the master teacher, he saw what was in front of them to represent and teach them what was about to come. These disciples really didn't know what was going to happen in a short time. But after it did happen, all this made perfect sense for the disciples. And when Jesus said he took the bread, Representing what he went through, even just to get to Calvary, even just to get to the cross, and the torture, and he was almost disfigured where people couldn't even recognize him. Though no bone was broken, his body was ripped apart. And so when we remember what he is willing to sacrifice, we remember his body. So in that, can you just pray for us as we partake? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you that as a community of believers, we can partake of this fellowship meal together. And Jesus, thank you for your body that you sacrificed for us on the cross. Thank you for everything that you endured 
on our behalf. Thank you for being the perfect Lamb of God. Amen.